Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 14 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Leave us a comment on our Tutor Time Machine Facebook page. We really love hearing from all our listeners. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it does go in order. There are so many historical characters to meet, and we've had such a great time researching it and working on it and bringing it to you. At this point in our story, we're following Constance as she embarks on a dangerous mission for Guzman de Silva, the Spanish ambassador. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 14. The River Thames, in which a Spaniard ferries Constance to a Scot. Constance's Spanish companion took her hand. The clandestine nature of the whole event was intoxicating as he assisted her down to the water and into a waiting barge. They perched side by side while the waterman set off without a sound. The river was as quiet. It was bitterly cold, but it made Constance feel strong. She would rise to the occasion and help the poor soul receive the holy bread. She would not be a person of indifference and apprehension. She was a stoner and would face this new illegality with pride. By the light of the boat's lantern, Constance made out the great shadow of the Tower of London. Her confidence cooled. Hell hosted fewer of the damned than that place. Whomever she was taking the holy bread to must be imprisoned just beyond it. In a house, such as Bedford House, only with a guard or two outside. That would not be so terrible. Her Spaniard began to move and talk to the oarsman, and the boat veered toward Traitor's Gate. Her mouth became dry. She smacked her lips, but no moisture wet them. She tried to find comfort in the image of Guzman, who had risked so much to bring the relic of the Virgin Mary to England, and who held mass in spite of the Queen. She thought of her own father pitching Sir Thomas More's severed head off London Bridge, and Isabel Stoner catching it. She thought of Lady Isabel trying to save More's ring, and Thomas Wyatt, who disregarded his sister's warnings to destroy it. What she was being asked to do was easy in comparison. Easy. Lofty people far above her, the bishop himself had arranged the enterprise. She was doing as they bid. It was nothing to do with her. The boat glided through the gate. A stout man stood on the wall, ready to hand her out of the boat. The Spaniard turned to her, holding the burst that held the host. How she wanted to remain seated on this barge in the icy night. The Spaniard touched his hand to his chest in a gesture of courage. She did what she must. She took the package and clambered off the barge. Fear makes you so cloddish, she thought. She slid along the wall behind her guide, remembering doing this sort of thing with Mary and Nazareth, and focusing on this obtrusive man with his wide-legged chicken gate. She made her way. They stayed low across the green and arrived at a half-sized door. Her guide pried it open, and she shimmied in. He had a tiny candle to light the way. Her feet mounted the winding stair with cat-like silence. She praised her feet. Another small door was before her. Was this the sort of occasion when one knocked? And might she call, Oh, noble prisoner, may I come in? She could not simply push it open and surprise the noble. The guide was retreating without a word as to her next step. Summoning her courage, she took off her gloves, scratched the door a few times, and then gave it a push. The unsmiling lady knight stood holding a taper, and the raisin-wrinkled Mistress Colson a prayer book. Behind them was a square pudge of a woman. My lady countess... Constance curtsied low, recognizing all of the women as friends of Aunt Stoner's. Never had she imagined that it would be to a person of the Countess of Lennox's importance that she would be sent. This lady was the daughter of Margaret Tudor, niece to old King Henry himself. 
a cousin to the Queen. She was the most powerful Catholic left in England. Her son, Lord Darnley, was recently married to Queen Mary of Scotland. Gee, Zoo! Constance's hands shook a little as she held out the burse. My lady, I have brought you the blessed host. The Countess of Lennox grabbed the box. Little Constance Stoner, you are nearly a woman. Constance considered she had crossed that bar. As she was risking her life, she need not be insulted. Are you well, my lady Countess? What a foolish question. Oh, forgive me, madam. How can I be well, imprisoned away from my husband and sons? They will not allow me visitors or letters. It is cruel for a mother. I have heard Lord Darnley is hearty and pleased with his new bride, the Queen Mary, Constance placated. He would be happier if his lady wife would do as she should and crown him King of Scotland. The Countess turned on her heel and went off with Mistress Colson. Lady Knight instructed Constance to wait and followed the Countess, taking the sole light. Constance's only comfort was the anonymity given by such a pitch if a guard were to come. She did not like the Countess. Her temper was not a result of being imprisoned. On visits to Stoner House, she had always been abrupt and imperious. But Constance had to admit, the Countess was to be admired for holding on to her faith so unequivocally. It was not right for a noblewoman, a tutor, to be in the tower with few attendants banished from the world outside. Some imprisoned here lived in comfort. Constance had once heard about an earl who expanded his chamber and made a place for bowls. The Countess of Lennox was not so fortunate. Was this lady such a threat? She would have hard work taking the throne from Elizabeth Regina, even though her claim was strong. But then she had encouraged a marriage between her son and the Queen of Scotland without Elizabeth's permission. The Countess did not fear Elizabeth, and that was her real treason. But then the Countess was more of a Scot, was she not? They had their own kingdom, and England was endlessly at war with them as far as Constance knew. What was the real danger of this grump? It was a danger to bring the host. Constance did not want to think of that. She gave in to the image of her own condemnation, standing alone before a jury, rich men who were eating and jesting before waving her into the custody of some one-eyed drooling jailer. She summoned up the face of Sir Charles Paget. how he would admire her for risking so much. The Countess of Lennox reappeared, looking no less sour for her devotions. There is a letter wrapped in the purse. Send it to your aunt Stoner in the cover of a correspondence from you, mistress. When you return next time, bring me your aunt's reply. Next time, Constance thought, she did not want to come again. Have you comprehended my instructions, girl? The countess barked. My lady, I have followed. I am honoured by this charge. With the help of Mistress Colson, Constance unpinned her sleeve, slipped the burse into it, and pinned it up again. Your family has known these walls. Bravery is in your blood, Mistress Coulson said. Constance wished there was no reason to be brave. She would rather be like the overweening Elin, but only in situation, not in character, and perhaps in her chin. Elin did have a lovely little chin. Go, God be with you. The Countess uttered the benediction without warmth. A servant opened the tiny door, and with mounting fear, Constance slipped through into the darkness. She stretched out her hands and tried to shuffle forward. Where was she supposed to go? Where was the man to light her way? She did not know what to do. She felt for the door again and knocked lightly. The servant inside hissed, Stop! Are you mad? I cannot find my way, Constance pleaded. Can you open the door and give me some light? No! Down the winding stairs! Someone will be at the bottom. Go quickly! Constance reached out, groping into the air, sure that she would miss the staircase and fall. How awful that would be, not only to be dead, but to leave such an ungainly corpse, her skirts around her head. 
she took a step into the darkness and thanked the Virgin when her foot hit the solid stone of the top stair. She made her way down, her body tense, until finally she reached what she prayed was the bottom. She leaned over to feel the tightly paved spiral stones of the floor with her hands. It was still dark, but with a crack of light from the outline of the outside door frame. She whispered, Is anybody there? The man with the chicken legs pulled back the door, holding a lantern, and the icy rain blew all over her. She propped the neck of her cloak over her nose and mouth and bent after him across Tower Green, confused that they did not go in the direction of the river. A porpoise was seen at London Bridge, the chicken man announced. A tempest is augured. The gentleman got off in the boat just in time. You will have to make your way back on foot. I cannot leave my post. Constance could not believe it. No doubt this man had been paid well for allowing her into the Countess of Lennox's chamber. He would escort her, and maybe provide a horse, for the right price. But she had no ready money. Her necklace was glass. No deal could be made. The Earl of Rutland's gold ring. It was not hers to bargain away. Constance followed Chicken Legs, soggily dodging into corners at his command when another watch passed. Approaching a gate, she crouched low behind the back of the stone wall, while the man convinced the gatekeeper to open it. Wordlessly, a lantern was passed into her hand, and she was shoved out into the wet muck. Tower Street was forbidding, and Bedford House miles away. The cunning little slippers Constance had worn for the wedding feast were sopping wet. She stepped out of them with each and every stride, yet she must progress. She found by sliding her feet the shoes stayed put. They also became engulfed in a mud pie she had to shake off after every few slides. Shambling along, her cloak trailing in the puddles, the lantern barely shedding light, she refused to figure the distance. Tower Hill emerged before her, and she slowed. It was a terrible bit of land. Young Wyatt and his friend, the Earl of Surrey, both died there. And, of course, the martyr Sir Thomas More had also lost his head on that spot. If only she could make some discovery about the relic, if she could return More's ring to its proper place, she would feel she had done such service to all Catholics, martyrs and living alike. She gazed at the hill, imagining the scaffold, the last words of the condemned. She had never witnessed the head chopped off by the axe. She knew some believed the spectacle unified the populace. She could not make an opinion. So far, Queen Elizabeth had not seen fit to execute anyone on Tower Hill. A pox on it! She had never been out in a deluge like this. Her guinea pig, Marquesse Petit Roy, had dropped into the rain bucket last Michaelmas. She fished the animal out, matted down and disoriented exactly as she herself was now. She had to find a stopping place. But she could not ask for shelter at one of the houses along the way. Too many questions. It occurred to her that Cheapside was halfway between the tower and Bedford House. If she could make it to the safety of the Arundel Inn, she was sure Philomena would aid her, and maybe even arrange for a horse and an escort back to Bedford House. Her friend was all discretion. The Tower of London. I bet many of you listeners have made the trek there. Jesse and I sure have. And even if you haven't been there in person, it's so iconic, I bet you know what it looks like. Sure, images of the tower are everywhere. On cups and tea towels and teapots. Even toilet paper. It's like a big Welcome to London sign. Once I was visiting and I forced everyone in my group to take a boat through Trader's Gate. And I have to say, it was pretty ominous. Or maybe it was just my imagination. I love how you do things in the historical way. I mean, forget taking the tube or the double-decker bus. Make everyone get in a boat. I think Trader's Gate is ominous now because of the association we have. 
When the tower was used as a royal residence in the 13th century, the gate had the innocuous name of the Water Gate. It has a very impressive portcullis. We'll put a picture of it on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page for you. Before the gate had the connotation of keeping people imprisoned, I'm sure royals appreciated this massivo barrier between them and their enemies. As the tower was more commonly used as a prison, the gate earned an ominous reputation, but it was always a symbol of the muscle of the monarchy. Most prisoners to the tower arrived by water, not by crossing any of the bridges. I wonder if that was because traveling by barge was more private than conveying a prisoner under arrest through the crowded streets. Common prisoners would be paraded through the city and people would come out and throw insults and trash at them. I guess nobles got better treatment. They kind of came undercover. I don't know. The monarch wasn't worried about the nobleman's privacy. He or she wouldn't want the accused to have supporters making a public display of loyalty to the nobleman who's being paraded to the tower. So bringing the accused by barge effectively hid them. I think that's true, right. And it's interesting to find out that the first known use of the name Trader's Gate wasn't until 1544 during the reign of guess who, Henry VIII. He put a lot of people through that gate. So when Sir Thomas More was conducted through the gate on his arrest in 1536, it wasn't called the Trader's Gate. But it did have that scary name in 1554 when Princess Elizabeth was conveyed to the tower. There's some debate out there, but it's probable that Anne Boleyn did not pass through Traitor's Gate at all when she was imprisoned in 1536. She did come by barge, but to the gate at the Bayward Tower, then called Court Gate, which would have been her right to use as she was queen. It's interesting that if you're queen, you still have these kind of Um, what's the word? Perks. Yeah, you have these perks. Even though you're being arrested, you get to go through a different gate. And beheaded. And beheaded. It's it's interesting. Actually, the last time I was in the tower, I spent a lot of time studying the graffiti carved into the walls. And two examples um, relate to Anne Boleyn. And both of them are kind of sad and touching. One is in the Martin Tower, and the name Boleyn is carved in the wall with a rose and an H. People think that was probably carved by Anne's brother, George. And the other is in the Beauchamp Tower, and it's a carving of Anne's falcon badge. She adopted this badge when she married Henry. It was a white falcon, a bird associated with her family, alighting on a tuft of Tudor roses. And the falcon is crowned and holds a scepter. In the carving in the wall in the tower, the falcon has no crown and no scepter. It's like fallen from its high ascent. It looks so forlorn. There's no record of which of the men arrested in the wake of Anne's downfall was housed in the Beauchamp Tower, but it is likely that one of them carved it. So Gage and I like to imagine it was Sir Thomas Wyatt who wrote a very powerful poem lamenting these executions. I'm going to read it, but I'm not going to make a big voice. (laughs) And you're only going to read a little bit of it because it's quite long. I'm only going to read a little bit of it. The bell tower showed me such sight that in my head sticks day and night. There did I learn out of a great, for all favor, glory, or might, that yet circa regna tonet. And circa regna tonet means thunder rolls around the crown? Yes. Yeah. 
it's one of those things where we hear about something historically so often we become sort of numb to it and to actually how horrific it must have been for the people looking on and seeing these five men executed and Anne executed. And this poem really brings a, a very human, immediate response to that. And I think it's really valuable to read these kind of things when we're thinking about history because they're they're just they show us the emotion of what the people felt at the time. The Anne graffiti is touching, but there are many people who left a memento of themselves or someone else on those walls. There's also the name Jane carved into the Beauchamp Tower, which is where Lady Jane Grey's husband, Guilford Dudley, was held. And they were both so young. Many, and I'm using my finger quotes, infamous 16th century historical figures were held at the tower. And it's easy to forget that they were just human beings facing their own deaths. Looking at the graffiti, it strikes you that these were real people in those rooms, real people who were terrified and trying to comfort themselves. That's how we think of the tower now, certainly as a place heavily associated with death. But it actually wasn't only a prison. It was originally conceived as a royal residence. And the White Tower was built first, and then it was expanded through the centuries. The whole complex was begun by William the Conqueror in 1066. Ooh, 1066. Yes, one of the most <laughs> famous states. And it was used as a royal residence and a prison from 1100 all the way to the 20th century. The last state prisoner to be held there was Rudolf Hess, deputy leader of the Nazi party. And the last execution was also a Nazi the German spy Joseph Jacobs. Apparently, the tower's first prisoner in 1100, one Ranulf Flambert, escaped by climbing out of the White Tower on a rope smuggled to him in a wine casket. I guess they improved security after that breakout. It became known <laughs> as an impenetrable fortress, though it was used to house prisoners of a certain rank. Very few people were actually executed within the compound. The Queen, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, and Lady Jane Grey were executed within the tower. Their rank, again, this was a perk they got, <laughs> meant that their executions were private and not witnessed by a crowd. Personally, by the time I got to an execution, I'm not sure if I would care if it was a crowd or just one person, but most executions were public affairs, and they would have been held on Tower Hill where spectators could gather. The tower was only for the most important prisoners. Fleet Street Prison and Tyburn were for commoners. These places were crowded, ridden with disease and horrible conditions. There were strong protocols about how the nobility must be treated, even if they were going to be executed. I always think of that scene in the movie Elizabeth when Kate Blanchett, who was brilliant, yeah. let's just say that, gets locked in the tower in a dark, dank cell. I mean, of course, a princess would never have been subjected to that type of treatment. She would have had a suite of rooms, appropriately furnished, and she would have had attendants. In the tower, the noble's living situation was not so different than on the outside. Uh, except that you were under threat of death and you couldn't leave, which could <laughs> probably get you down, even if you had nice <laughs> hangings on the walls. True, true. But the rooms of the tower were modified to accommodate the nobles in some luxury. Who do you think paid for that? That's a really good question. I think the crown provided basics, but I'm guessing the prisoner had to cover extras. I mean, in common prisons, the inmate had to pay for everything, food, a place to sleep. There was little or no prison regulation, and selling privileges was a way for prison staff to make money. 
So our Countess of Lennox wouldn't be in a cell. She would be in rooms outfitted for someone of her rank. There's some question of whether they were outfitted for someone of her rank. So thanks again to the fabulously detailed correspondence between the Spanish ambassador Guzman de Silva and his big boss, King Philip of Spain, we know that Guzman reported that the Countess of Lennox was being kept in what he considered second-rate rooms for one of her status. King Philip was concerned with her health and welfare and that she wasn't being respected by having the proper rooms. And we also know that Philip requested Guzman arrange for someone to sneak the host into the tower so the countess could receive Catholic communion. We don't really know who brought the sacrament, but we chose Constance for this dangerous chore. Absolutely. It's where history meets imagination. That's so fun. So the host is the communion wafer used in the Christian ritual of commemorating the Lord's Supper. One of the main differences between the Catholic and Protestant beliefs is this question of transubstantiation. As far as I understand it, and I am no religious expert, transubstantiation is the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus. In the Catholic belief, the bread and wine actually transform into the physical body of Jesus and the wine becomes his actual blood after the host is blessed by the priest. And in the Protestant tradition the wine and the bread are a commemoration of the body and blood. This doesn't sound like a distinction worth killing each other over but people definitely did. Sure for hundreds of years. King Philip, the Bishop Guzman de Silva, the Countess of Lennox, and Constance would have thought that to be denied the host, blessed by a Catholic priest, put your immortal soul in danger. Yes, it's very serious for them. And this is a very risky thing for Constance to do to bring this host. Elizabeth outlawed Roman Catholic Mass. So while she was kind of, quote, you know, turning a blind eye, she didn't want the Roman Catholics to be practicing openly, and she specifically forbade Mass to the Countess of Lennox. Oh, so we've been talking for weeks about Catholics in England, and now you throw in the Roman thing. What's that? Well, I was wondering if you would catch that. So a listener pointed out that the term Catholic can also be used to include the Eastern Orthodox Church, but Roman Catholics are under the authority of the Pope in Rome, and I thought I would use my new knowledge. Constance is breaking the religious laws by conveying a consecrated host, and she's going against Elizabeth's direct orders that the Countess of Lennox should not have visitors or any communication with the outside. To give you a little introduction to Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox, she was born in 1515. She was the daughter of Margaret Tudor, we remember as the sister of King Henry, and her second husband, Archibald Douglas, 6th Earl of Angus. Margaret Tudor's first husband was the Scottish King James IV, so Margaret Tudor's son with James IV was James V, father of Mary, Queen of Scots. In Scotland, everyone is named James and Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> so when Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox, was born, she was, as Henry VIII's niece, the first in line to the English throne because at that time, Henry had not had any living children with Catherine of Aragon. But in 1516, Mary Tudor was born, so Margaret Douglas fell into second place. But she was still incredibly important. And Margaret Douglas's claim to the throne comes up throughout her life, obviously. And her importance went back and forth. 
After the death of Anne Boleyn, Henry declared his daughters Mary and Elizabeth illegitimate. So at that time, Margaret Douglas was back in the line of succession after Prince Edward. But towards the end of the life of Henry, he brought his daughters back into succession, probably because he was counting on Edward reigning for a long time and producing his own sons. And as we know, Edward VI died young, and after this very brief reign of Lady Jane Grey, whose claim was from Henry's other sister, Mary Tudor, Henry's daughter, Mary I, was crowned. And Margaret Douglas was a close friend of Mary I, Henry's daughter. So here we go with all these Marys. But anyway, (laughs) Margaret Douglas would have known Mary's husband, Philip of Spain, quite well. And Margaret Douglas was a firm Catholic. And actually, Mary I wanted Margaret to take the throne on her death rather than Elizabeth. And it was Philip himself who told her to name Elizabeth. I think he did that because he intended to marry Elizabeth himself. But of course, Elizabeth dodged that offer. Margaret Douglas did not fight Elizabeth for the throne, but she did not give up on her goal, which was to get her son, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, married to Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots. Darnley himself had a claim to the English throne, and so did Mary Stuart. Darnley and Mary Stuart were cousins. Both were grandchildren of Margaret Tudor. In fact, they had to get a papal dispensation to marry because they were so closely related Yuck. So here we are in 1565. Elizabeth has thrown Margaret Douglas, the Countess of Lennox, into the tower because she encouraged this marriage between Mary Stuart and Lord Darnley directly against Elizabeth's orders. Lady Margaret Douglas does not care about going to prison herself. In her mind, she has to do whatever she can to ultimately have one of her descendants rule England and Scotland. She might bemoan her situation, but she would not have done anything differently. She knew full well she could wind up in the tower or worse. The Countess of Lennox didn't get everything she wanted from this marriage between her son and Mary of Scots, and we see that in this chapter. The Countess of Lennox tells Constance that Mary Stuart should crown Darnley King of Scotland. That sounds a little confusing, but we will clarify what what exactly was going on there. Darnley was never actually crowned king. He was a king consort which limited his power to be subject to his wife's. Mary was the hereditary ruler of Scotland, and her husband Darnley was technically Mary's subject, not her equal. What's really important to understand is if she were to die before him, he would not become king, and he did not have the power to make policy without asking Mary first. So Lady Lennox wanted Mary to challenge the limitation of her son's power, and have him crowned to be her equal. Darnley had no hereditary claim to the Scottish throne, but as Margaret Tudor's grandson, he did have claim to the English throne. And that's the exact claim that Mary Stuart has. So these two Scottish royals, Mary Stuart and Lord Darnley, really concerned Elizabeth because they were just too close to the English throne. And they were very popular with all-powerful Spain. King Philip blessed their union and gave them a lot of support. The Spanish saw potential in the claim of Mary Stuart and Lord Darnley to the English throne to return the country to Roman Catholicism. This concern of King Philip to the Countess of Lennox is the reason why in our story we have Constance go to the Tower of London with the host. And now Constance is tromping past Tower Green with wet slippers and a long walk to find some shelter at the Arundel Inn. And it's really important to understand that Elizabeth's position as queen 
in England is pretty shaky in 1565. We tend to look back and imagine that she was always Gloriana and held unquestioned sway over her people. But we've highlighted some of the very substantial claims other people had to mm -hmm. the throne in this episode. And these claims must have kept Elizabeth up at night. I have to say, when you realize how much pressure Elizabeth was under, especially as an unmarried queen, I mean, I don't think we, we take that in stride now, but it was so unusual and unprecedented at the time. And it's really a testament to the force of her personality and her statesmanship that she survived. And she didn't just execute her rivals as her father did. I mean, she finessed situations, averted crises, and she really took a long view of things. Maybe that's because some of these claims were actually stronger than her claim. Mm -hmm. If you believe Anne Boleyn's marriage to Henry was invalid, then he was still married to Catherine of Aragon. I mean, this is a fascinating debate. So weigh in on our Twitter Time Machine Facebook page. Who do you think had the most legitimate claim to the English throne? Elizabeth or someone else? We'd really love to hear from you because it's such an interesting question and there's so many candidates. So tune in next time for Time's Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. All our gratitude for listening. And remember, then is now. Oh.